Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. This is Dina Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're actually back in the podcast studio. It's been a while since we've been in the studio physically. We're sitting here with our special guest. She's back. I'm back. <laughs> the wonderful, the super talented, the amazing, our new director of development, Chelsea Bunyer. Hey guys. Super happy to be back. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, you know, being the uh, employee with the most seniority uh, <laughs> other than Dino here at Project Purple, I was the last one asked to do a podcast, but um, super happy to be whoa, here. Whoa, still. The, the shots across the <laughs> bow come early. Well, Chelsea, first of all, thank you for coming back. And for those listening at home, Chelsea just mentioned she is the second most tenured employee here at Project Purple. Did leave for a little while, for about eight months, to take a position in the Boston area with another great, wonderful charity, ALS, and then decided to come back. Alzheimer's Association, that's Alzheimer's, okay. Alzheimer's, yeah. Alzheimer's Association. Yeah. And decided to come back. So we are excited to have you back running development, which is overseeing all of our fundraising and also overseeing our marathon teams and working with our staff in terms of fundraising and raising more money so that we can help more people and hopefully get to our mission, which is a world without pancreatic cancer sooner than later. So as they say, you can always come back as long as you leave on good terms. <laughs> true. That's a joke, but no, you did leave on great terms and we were sad to see you leave, but we love that you're back. So Chels, for the audience listening at home, because some people, this may be the first time that they've heard your name, uh, quite possibly, um, you know, we've got such a vast audience that listens to the Project Purple podcast. Why don't you give them an opportunity to talk a little bit about your personal background and kind of get caught up to where we are today in, in your professional life? Because you've got yeah. a fascinating background. I, have, I, I do I, have. I've, uh, I've known you for quite some time, so it's it's kind of a cool story. Yeah, I do have um, an interesting story, and I I kind of like to tell it because um, I feel like uh, I I I don't meet a ton of people who come from the same background as me, um, so I, I do like to share it. So um, I grew up in a town of uh, 800 people, Shannon, Illinois. Um, it's in the northwest corner of Illinois, so super close to the, the Iowa and Wisconsin border, um, super close to the Mississippi River. Um, but yeah, you heard me right. It's a town of 800 people. Um, and With one light. No lights. No lights. No stoplights. Actually, um, when I was in college, uh, the county that I lived in got its first stoplight. So It's exciting stuff. Um, <laughs> that was a big deal. Um, People get excited now about like <laughs> Wendy's. We just got a Wendy's here in town and there was like a line for like a mile, yeah, you know, Chick-fil-A, these, these people camp out. You guys were excited about a stoplight. <laughs> yeah, we were excited about a stoplight. So um, I, I like to talk about that because, um, you know, it's it's a big part of who I am. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest and in a town where uh, I was a three-sport athlete and um, really, really enjoyed uh, playing volleyball, basketball, track, softball too. Um, that was a big part of my life and a big part of the community there. Um, and I think that, you know, that that experience of, of growing up there um, really, you know, made me into the person I am today. So my, my main focus when I was, uh, you know, in high school there was was basketball. Um, and I, I had the opportunity to uh, go out to Staten Island, New York and play basketball for Wagner College, uh, Division One basketball program and a full ride scholarship. Uh, and that, that was my dream. <laughs> so that was an amazing experience for me. Uh, and uh, I think being a part of the athletic teams that I've been a part of, you know, both growing up and uh, in college um, has has really helped me develop skills that are applicable to what I'm doing uh, in my professional career in the world of fundraising. Uh, I also coached collegiate basketball uh, for four years as well. So, and you also played overseas. Let's be. I, let's. Yeah. You had a wonderful <laughs> career. I mean, you were a all-state player, multiple sports in high school. Yep. And then you decided to take on basketball at Wagner and had uh, a great career there and then eventually played overseas until an injury kind of derailed your playing career. Yeah, and I did. I, I 
I had a short playing career overseas um, because I came back and, and ended up getting a coaching gig and settled into that. Uh, but yeah, I did have a, an Achilles rupture, which if any of you listening have, have had an Achilles rupture, you know what I'm talking about. It's like a year and a half recovery. Uh, if you're a professional athlete and that happens to you, you're, you're probably not coming back. So um, that, that was a rough injury, but I will say that being a part of Project Purple and the running community uh, at Project Purple has has really helped me kind of find my groove and get back into the world of athletics and, and being fit and running. So that's been really exciting for me as well. Do you find a lot of uh, correlation between the coaching? And then I think the other thing too that comes into this, and we've talked about this, you and I have talked about it and some of the other staffers, where we're teaching participants how to fundraise so you've got the coaching aspect but then if you look at it from just from the pure athletic standpoint where you have success you achieve high success and then you go to college and you have success and achieve high success and that would it, I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful here it's not like you're super talented you're not seven feet you're not six foot five so you had to work really hard to get to that point and i know you and i have had these conversations about putting in the effort to get that return and the hard work yeah. and the training and do you see kind of that prepare you somewhat for like the role that you have now and like when you ventured into this project purple world which was like your first foray into charity in in terms of what you were doing in terms of preparation for that? Yeah, I think, you know, I think one of the biggest takeaways that I've I've gotten from uh, being a player uh, and a coach in in the athletic world is that uh, everybody's different and uh, everybody's motivated kind of by different things and, and they're best motivated in different ways. And I think that's one of the most important pieces I've taken away from my experience that's directly transferable to uh, fundraising in the community here at Project Purple. Um, you know, people might not want to uh, fundraise $1,000. Uh, they might want to just, you know, make their $25 donation for the year and that's how they want to contribute. Um, and they might not want to make a donation. Maybe they want to um, contribute to Project Purple by volunteering at one of our events, uh, whether it's like a, a walk or, or a pizza eating contest or uh, one of our local food truck events that we have going on here. Um, I think everyone kind of has different reasons for getting involved and is motivated by different things. Uh, and I think once you start to think about that and kind of learn the different reasons that, that people are are interested in being involved, um, you can really start to connect with people and, and learn why they, they're doing what they're doing. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's critical to the success of any program, regardless of whether it's Project Purple or another charity, another great charity, because there's so many great charities out there. So you, you come back. We're excited to have you back. You, you had uh, about three years with us prior Yep. Two and a half. Two and a half years. Yep. And kind of fascinating. You know, we've grown tremendously over the last couple of years when you came in. I remember the first day you came in and interviewed, believe it or not, <laughs> I in the old, old office. <laughs> and, uh, but you started, your role was kind of different. You didn't jump into fundraising right away. You were our patient financial aid coordinator. Yeah. So talk to our audience at home a little bit, because that's such a pillar of what Project Purple has become. I mean, we are the leading provider in the country of patient financial aid from a monetary standpoint. We work with a lot of other groups to help families because we do have a limited source of funding, uh, but our ultimate goal is to give them hope, provide some funding for some bills, and hopefully open some doors for them to get more funding and more opportunities where they can get assistance. But what was that like coming in, you know, straight into the role? So so first of all, I just want to say I do have a personal connection to pancreatic cancer. Um, I lost my grandmother when I was in high school to the disease. And uh, that's, you know, why part of the reason I got involved with Project Purple in the first place was was because of my connection. Um, so initially, when I when I started with the organization uh, as as the patient financial aid coordinator, I think that was 
such a perfect way for me to enter the organization uh, because I got to see firsthand uh, how we were impacting people's lives, first of all. Um, And then I also really had an appreciation for what the struggles were of those families um, and and how important it was uh, exactly what we were doing for them. Um, So I I really think that helped me, uh, you know, craft my story around Project Purple and be able to talk to people about what we're doing uh, in, in a significant way. Yeah, it's fascinating, you know, as we've grown and as we've added staff and we have someone in that role right now, you know, but I've always thought about your example because it's such a great opportunity, as you say, to learn about like the struggle of the families that we help, which is so powerful and so impactful. And and I know we're doing a better job of trying to tell those stories. And sometimes there's sensitivity. We, we, we don't share people's names and Mm -hmm. exact information. So we, we try to be conscious of that unless they allow us to do that naturally in pictures. We do share a lot of the pictures of the blanket program, which is part of the PFA program. But I think that's just such, such, such a powerful way to kind of get to know what we do first of all, but also the impact of what we do. Yeah. And, and the reality of the disease. Um, you know, I think when, you're talking to people who have been very recently affected by the disease. It's it's really important to have that peace and to know, um, you know, what the reality of the disease is and what it looks like because uh, those people they they might not be ready to talk about it right away. Um, so it, it's 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 been really valuable for me to have that experience. And then you transitioned. It was a short period of time. Uh, I think it was within like the first six or eight months mm-hmm. that you transitioned yep. and you expressed an interest to do more on the fundraising side. So you transitioned into kind of the fundraising coach for our marathon teams. And so how was that originally, like when you first got into that? I mean, there's definitely a science to uh, fundraising and peer-to-peer fundraising specifically. Um, so, you know, I think there was a small learning curve just in terms of uh knowing the best strategies when it came to, to doing that um, and uh, figuring out how to best communicate with teams and w- what were the most effective ways. Um, but when I look back at it now, it couldn't have been a more perfect fit for me. Um, coming from a competitive background, uh, being used to figuring out ways to motivate players and engage players and uh, kind of create a sense of community within a team. Uh, I, looking back now, it really was the perfect transition and the perfect fit for me uh, at Project Purple. What's probably the couple of the most important things you learned early on about like fundraising and working with individuals and teams and stuff like that? Uh, and when yeah. we say teams, I mean, it's not teams that are fundraising. I mean, we do get that from time to time, but it's really like we're talking about teams like the New York City Marathon team, the Chicago Marathon team, our Lincoln Marathon team and those sorts of teams because they're all – I mean, I think at one point we were like in 20 marathons. We've we've pared down the list a bit, right? Um, just to kind of focus, and and you know we've built some areas and some we've kind of retracted from because they just haven't worked for us, and we've seen other areas kind of grow. So, you know, talk a little bit about that. You know, how that couple tidbits that you can share of of power knowledge that uh, that really worked really well. Yeah, I think. You know, probably the biggest thing that uh, I learned early on with teams, um, you know, a lot of these races that we do, uh, people have fundraising minimums and and a lot of people are going to hit those minimums no matter what, no matter what you do. Um, You know, some of some of the fundraising happens on its own and and people like to, you know, do their own thing and that's fine. Uh, But I think it's really important to. Uh, continue to give people love, continue to get in front of people, um, to let your runners know that you're supporting them, uh, that you have their backs. Um, And the reason I think this is so important is because I think it leads to uh, retention later on. And I think people see what we do, we give them a personalized experience, and then they come back the following year. And I I think that's that's something that... um, you know, we can look at our numbers year over year and see that that people come back for that reason. You just mentioned something I want to talk about, the experience. You know, and I think that's something that 
prior to this podcast, we just had a meeting. <laughs> we talked about that experience and communicating and something that uh, I hope that for our listeners at home that have run for us or participated in our events have felt that. And for those that haven't yet, I think that's one of the things that you and I talk about often is about you know that connection, about the community yeah. that we've helped build here, that you've helped build and the rest of the staff. And I think that's like really important. I think that's the one thing. And I think this podcast, one of the foundations of it is, you know, to the pancreatic cancer community that there is an outlet, that there are survivors, that there are groups like ours and mm -hmm. what we do and how we help and how we connect and give families an opportunity to fight back and give back and do all those great things. So I think it's really, really powerful with that. You know, what you just said about that is just really fascinating. And I think sometimes for us, you know, we get kind of caught up in the numbers a little bit sometimes because it is a numbers game. Right. right. Um, but, you know, it's important to kind of realize that and, you know, think about the impact and the community that's being built around us and, and all the wonderful families that get involved. And it it's such a devastating disease. So for us, and, you know, you you started building this charity back in 2010 and you you thought running was going to be uh, you know a, a good way to get people engaged and get them excited about what they were doing uh, and I think uh, what we see here in 2019 is pretty amazing in terms of the running community that we've built uh, and because it is such a devastating disease um, you you take something that's so positive, you know, running a marathon or a half marathon where you're accomplishing an amazing goal uh, and you pair it with fundraising for a cause that uh, is so close to your heart or has impacted your family. Uh, and it, it's a pretty amazing way um, to, you know, kind of get through a, a tough time in your life. So I think that's what's really cool about uh, being part of the running program here. So... From your time here at Project Purple, being on the PFA side, starting with that, and then transitioning over to the, the fundraising end of things, overseeing the teams, and then, you know, departing after our, our largest or best year ever, I should say. Now we go into this new transition, which is director development. And what are the some, some of the things that you're excited about now moving forward in this new role? for us here at Project Purple? Yeah, so, um, I mean, first of all, I'm just super excited to be managing the teams again because that's something that I've truly enjoyed over the past two years doing that for Project Purple. Uh, I really I really love it. Um, but after taking hiatus and, and working for a larger organization for a while and kind of seeing, you know, what they've done to get to the point that they are and the benefits that they reap now that they're at that point. Um, I, I'm excited to try and take some of those things and implement them here at Project Purple. And Project Purple is, we're still, we're still small. You we're know, startup. We, we're, we're still small. Um, we have how many employees now? We got, we got Sam Six. leaving us, but we have Producer Sam is leaving. Producer Sam is departing, so that's very sad. As we sad. give him the, the stink eye. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, we're, we're you know, a startup. We're under 10 employees total. Yeah. You know, we're in that 5 to 10 range, and there's a constant, I think, ebb and flow in terms of, you know, staffing and resources. And, you know, the goal is to, you know, raise as much money as possible with as little staff as possible sometimes, you know, just because the staffing changes. But, you know, we're only as good as our, our weakest link. Right. And, you know, the staff here does an amazing job of what we're able to do with what we have. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, we do a lot with a little. And I think that, you know, some of the things that um, ha make some of these larger organizations successful are things that we can start implementing or at least focusing on. Um, you know, continuing to, to build and engage our ambassador program, you know, having those core people who uh, have been so good for us and really support us and, and get the word out, um, continuing to do that. Um, just the power of numbers is, is crazy, right? The amount of, of supporters you have behind uh, your organization is going to propel you to a new level. Um, and the number of volunteers that you have, you know, we, uh, we have the ability here to 
to recruit more volunteers and put more time and energy into the amount of volunteers we have because who knows what that's going to turn into later. Um, and just as we continue to get bigger, which we have year in and year out, um, just name recognition, I think, you know, some of these larger charities um, are are able to appro- approach a, a corporate sponsorship meeting in a totally different way. Um, and, and that name recognition is really important. So as we continue to do all those things, we're, we're going to start to get there, which I think we already are. We're already on that path. It's just a matter yeah. of getting there. I think it's just a matter of time. Let's shift gears here a little bit. And I want to talk about fundraising. And this is something that I, I think, you know, is critical to our mission. It's critical to anyone's mission that's a nonprofit is how they raise money. And in, in our world, it's, you know, fundraising. Majority of it's the peer-to-peer model for audience listening at home that doesn't know what that means is individuals asking other individuals for funds to help them run, walk, do fitness, hike, climb, push-ups, whatever it may be, any, anything physically related. In your experience, what are some, and we don't have to name any individuals uh, individually like here on the podcast, but what are just some of the best practices that you've seen? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, I think it can, it can vary depending on the individual, right? Because if you're if you're someone who works for a corporation and has a lot of contacts there, um, you want you want to be engaging those contacts. Um, so I really think the people the people that I see that do the best job fundraising um, think about their network of people and what makes sense for them to do within that network. So uh, if they have a network that's you know really into breweries and beer, you know like kind of focusing on on doing some nights like that where your your people are going to uh, really enjoy coming and hanging out and having a beer and, and maybe that brewery is going to give back some funds. Um, so really just thinking about the community that surrounds you and what's going to work best. Um, and then also, you know, people who uh, aren't afraid to ask for donations, right? So, uh year in and year out, not being afraid to ask someone for that annual donation, because usually if it's somebody who's a friend or a family member, um, they're not going to hesitate and they're going to be happy to donate to a cause that you're passionate about. So um, yeah, I think those those people who aren't afraid to ask and also aren't afraid to mix it up and try new things uh, and not go back to just the same old tricks every time. I think what we've seen, and, and I agree 120% with what you just said, people who have a lot of fun with those types of activities. And I think on that note, there's two ways I think of doing this. You could have the direct ask and asking I've always said is like, Hey, we can share with you ideas and strategies on how to be successful. But if they don't ask, if they don't physically take the action to ask the people or they're scared of asking, then it's not going to work regardless of how great the strategy is. Yeah. Right. So if, if for listeners at home and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, I, I don't want to come off as like this superficial jerk saying like, hey, you have to ask, but that just, you have to understand that. And I know we've had runners come through the program where they don't ask, they just write checks, which is fine. Totally we fine. We take those We take well. those too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> those cash the same way as those other checks. But to go back to it, you know, you have to have people willing to do the ask. But I think going back to the first statement that you made is having fun with some of these ideas and really finding what works for you. And I know we've shared a lot, like we've done, people have done calendar raffles, people have done the beer nights, they've done trivia nights. Um, they've even done like their own little mini like 5Ks and stuff like that, like fun runs and stuff like that. But whatever fits in your circle, it could even be like, I saw something today, which was like uh, on, on social media, it was like they had this golf thing but then they had all these funky like things at every hole that were related to like fundraising. Like they had like squirt guns off the, like taking (laughs) like ping pong balls that were, there was a table at like a hole 
uh, uh, you know, prior to the tee, before the golfers were teeing off, and they had this contest, and they had all these ping pong balls on like nails, and they gave everyone squirt guns, and whoever was able, it's like kind of like those carnival games, you yeah. know, like fill the uh, fill the balloon, you know, with a clown, like shoot the water into the clown's mouth and stuff. So, the, like anything like that, you know, if that's if you've got some really goofy friends and like you love to play totally. golf and like it's not just going out there and being really serious about playing golf, you can add all these things in you know, to make it fun and to raise money. I think donors are more prone to receive something in return like a beer or like a round of golf or a cocktail wiener or cheese and wine at some sort of a fundraising event than versus just giving a check. Definitely. And I that's actually like a great way to go about getting people to donate a second time. So, you know, you, you make that first round and ask, and you tell them where that money is going to go. And a lot of times those people are going to be willing to donate again if they get something in return. So, you know, whether that's going to a Red Sox game together and you, you know, fronting a little bit of money for, for tickets and then they pay a little extra on top of the cost of the ticket. You know, there's so many ways to do it. But yeah, like you said, feeling like they're getting something in exchange for that, for that donation. And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example too. Um, you know, for a fundraiser for me, that's like a total no brainer. Having been a college basketball player and uh, playing overseas and then coaching, I do a March Madness bracket and uh, I raise $2,000, you know, like it's nothing. I, not like well, let's nothing, talk about that. But... So like, and you've done this a couple times here at Project Purple for yep. various, uh, for the New York City half marathon the past two years. So talk about what you did, how much it brought in and what you put into it in terms of time and or money. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, these March Madness brackets make it super simple. It is not a time intensive thing. So uh, what I did was I went and signed up on, on one of the bracket websites. I think, you know, ESPN does one, maybe CBS. Yep. Who else does one? ESPN, ESPN, CBS, and yeah. I think there's might be one more like via Allstate tournament yeah. tournament challenge, but I think they might piggyback on one of the two. Right. So basically, you just pick a tournament challenge, uh, you set up a bracket pool, and then very easily those websites allow you to copy and paste a link to share with anyone and everyone you want to share that link with, um, and and. The language I use is really simple. Uh, I send out an email or maybe even a text um, to all the friends and family and coworkers in my network, and I just say, "Hey, uh, Bunyer's bracket is is happening. It's it's going to go live in about a week. Here, um, all it takes is a twenty five dollar donation or more um, to get an entry. So for every twenty five dollar donation, you can actually get one entry, one bracket entry, and that gives you a chance to uh, win a prize and in terms of the prize that you're willing to offer, you can contribute some of your own money for that if you want. So um, my most successful bracket fundraiser was when I put in $200 of my own money and offered an Amazon gift card for people because I think, you know, to make a $25 donation, you want to have at least a $200 price point in terms of what the the offering is going to be for the prize. Um, and, and that definitely gets more people involved because they know, you know, there's not a thousand people that are going to be doing this bracket challenge and they have a pretty good chance of winning. And everyone always thinks that their bracket's going to be like perfect. <laughs> Until Duke Ooh, loses in the semifinals <laughs> or, you know, the, the big upset. Yeah. At the beginning, they're all convinced that their bracket's going to be perfect. So anyway, there are other ways. I just want to make this this note too. There are other ways to offer a prize. Um, and you can think about this, but uh, you can ask businesses in the area to offer gift cards. Um, you don't have to take that money out of your own pocket. You can go out to businesses and ask for prizes for this. Yeah, I think anything, and March Madness is a great example, but even with the Super Bowl, we've done the Super Bowl squares. It's kind of fascinating how Gamble has kind of crossed the line mm. into charitable fundraising yeah. <laughs> here. Uh, not that we're advocating that you do that for everything, but I think anytime there's an opportunity to raise money for philanthropy and combine sports, whether it's NFL, MLB, NBA, NCAA, NHL, tennis, 
I mean, if you're if you've got tennis fans out there, you can easily do something with the U.S. Open that's coming up, or you know Wimbledon or the French Open. You know, it's just brackets. Yep. So, I, but again, I think going back to what you said originally, find what works for you in terms of your network, your social influence, the people that you're connected with, because that will determine, you know, the success probably of that type of event. You play basketball, you have a lot of friends who have played or are involved. And so it's an easy sell, right? Like everyone knows that Chelsea played basketball, even family members, right? So it's not like someone's going to say, well, why am I doing this March Madness bracket, right? Right. So I think that's, that's really critical to that. My next question for you, in your experience that you've had in philanthropy, and regardless of whether it's been here or at the other organization you were at for a short time, what is the best fundraising event, excluding your own, that you've seen? Oh, man. That's non-traditional. And what I mean by traditional is like that direct ask. Like right. everyone's got an amazing story and people can articulate that and put a post on Facebook. But this is more directly related to like an event that someone put on or a concept or some sort of idea to raise money. I have to say like in this this idea – is one that, you know, literally anyone could do. I think sometimes there there are events that happen that, you know, require fronting a little bit of money uh, initially, and, and not everyone might be interested in doing that. Um, but we had a New York City Marathon runner uh, last year, I believe, that did a bowling night, and um, she did a little bit of front end work. She, she secured the venue. Uh, it was a venue that could fit a decent amount of people. Um, she spread the word, she told her friends and family about it. And then she also went out to businesses and, uh, secured a bunch of raffle items as well as like some wine bottles to do like a wine pull at this event as well. Um, and what's a wine pull for our listeners so, at home that um, may not be aware of this? Sure. So wine this pull is like is, its own fundraising idea. Yeah, in exactly. Itself. Like, so a wine pull is pretty simple. And these are things that people do at like galas too. You can add them to a certain event or you could make it event, an event of its own. Um, but basically a wine pull is where you could go out to various liquor stores and ask them to donate uh, X number bottles of wine. Um, and usually these bottles of wine vary in terms of how much they cost. Uh, and then everyone who wants to participate in the wine poll um, pays a certain amount, uh, maybe like $20, for example, um, to pull one bottle of wine. So that bottle of wine that they get, you know, could be a $20 bottle. It might be a $50 bottle. It could also be a $10 bottle. So um, it's it's an interesting way. People are definitely getting something in return for uh their money for their donation. Uh, and usually you can get liquor stores to donate that, that, that wine. So it's a pretty good way to do things. Cool. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the bowling, back to the bowling. Um, so this New York city marathon runner, um, raised $6,500 in that one night, that one bowling night. So it was a night of bowling where everyone had fun and it was friends, family, coworkers, uh, for a few hours of bowling fun and beer. Uh, and, uh, like that, she, she had $6,500. And like I said, she did a little bit of front end work, but I thought it was a pretty, pretty amazing event, uh, and a pretty great way to, to get some quick funds. Who doesn't like bowling either? Yeah, too? I mean, come on. And no one, it's like one of those things that you can't really take yourself that serious with, right? Yeah. So you're going to have a good time regardless. <laughs> I mean, my dad did bowl a 300 game at some point, but like... I haven't done that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm lucky if I break a hundred, Chelsea. If we're going bowling, <laughs> duck pin or the the larger the, balls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bumper bowling bumper for you. Bowling. Yeah, we'll, we'll throw the bumpers up. That's fascinating, and I remember that because I remember now that you tell that story, I remember that whole situation, and and yeah, I mean, I think again, anything that involves fun and get people involved and they get something out of it and clearly with this they're having a good time they're getting bottles of wine possibly and again it's not rocket science but there is a science to it right right talk about a couple things what should our listeners if we have people that are listening and we hope that 
the runners that are running here in our fall teams are, will listen to this podcast as well. And maybe they'll get some inspiration from this conversation as well. Or maybe there's someone out there that possibly is fundraising for another great organization. What are some of the things to avoid in terms of fundraising in your experience? Hmm. Fundraising pitfalls. Um, so definitely if you're, you know, a first year fundraiser, you're inexperienced, waiting until the last minute. Um, <laughs> probably not the best idea. Yeah. The no. week before the race, we don't like to see that. We don't like to have those conversations. I mean, I, there are some people who can raise funds pretty quickly yeah. and are pretty successful, but, um, I always say the sooner you start, the more you're going to raise. Um, and you know, you can raise a bunch of money in a, a quick period of time, but how great is it to do that on the early side? And then after that, you have additional time to raise more funds. Maybe you get creative and do something different. So um, definitely, you know, waiting too long is uh, not the best method for, for getting your fundraising up and running. Um, what are some other pitfalls? I think that's so powerful, though, because as society, we tend to procrastinate, right? And that's like a tough thing. And I always tell people... It's nice to just get the fundraising out of the way early. So then, especially for those that are training for a race, if it's a half marathon, a marathon, a 10 mile race, because we do some oddball distances, it's so nice to be done with that fundraising and then just focus on the training. And then, like you said, like there are opportunities to do some fun things, but taking, and I wouldn't say it's pressure, because I don't see it as pressure. I mean, no one should feel like they're pressured to do this, I mean, right? You but might just if like you're a first-time fundraiser and you have maybe. some nerves, yeah. you know, going into it. So, yeah, it's a good idea just to kind of like rip that Band-Aid off and, yeah. and get in there and, and start fundraising. Um, and as we've been talking here, I, I thought of a couple of other things that uh, I can mention. Um, when you get a donation, thank your donor and uh, thank them quickly. <laughs> um, I think I made a donation to, to someone's page for a different organization recently. And my, my friend out there still has not thanked me. So, so if they're listening to the <laughs> if podcast, you're listening to the podcast, you should... Laura, <laughs> Oh, you're naming her. Wow. You're calling her out. I, I haven't been thanked for that donation yet, but I was still, still happy to give it to her. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have heard this stat, but one of the biggest reasons that people don't donate again is because they weren't thanked the first time. So um, always make sure to thank your donors. Um, and for those repeat fundraisers, um, ask again. So that's the second reason that people don't don't donate. They're not asked a second time. So, um, you know, people can always say no, and you're not going to be offended by that. But don't be afraid to um, ask someone to donate a second time and even think about showing them what their impact was um, from the initial time that they donated. I couldn't agree with you more. Those are the top two reasons why people don't do not donate and corporations don't donate again is they're not thanked. And I know we've talked about this. Typically we like our fundraisers to thank people within 72. We, I, I prefer 48 hours because I think instant gratification. 24, 24 is even yeah. better. But you know, we understand people are traveling. They've got lives. They got work. And, you know, that sometimes it just takes them a while to get back to everyone. 72 hours, I think, is like the, the, the longest I'd like to see people thank people. But I, I think it also in today's society, also, a lot of the platforms allow you to do this very quickly on mobile devices, you know, and so you can simply click, copy and paste and thank someone really quick. I mean, there's some really creative ways that we share with our fundraisers on how to do that. And you, people get really creative, postcards and Facebook memes and other ways to, to express their thanks and gratitude for those donations. Regardless of how you do it, it should be done right away. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing is the, you know, and, and I wanna kind of segue into this next part is, you know, the ask. And that's the second reason why people don't donate again is they're not asked to. And we have kind of, I think, this assumption that they're just gonna donate, right? So with that, what's some things when we, and we have experienced this here in terms of 
runners that come back year after year. Mm -hmm. And there's this thing in the charitable world called donor fatigue. Sure. So on that, what are some things for past participants or I wouldn't say habitual is kind of a, 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 not a proper term, but for people who fundraise year over year or fundraise for various causes, because some people, and we have this here, like some people have lost the parent to pancreatic cancer and then the other parent they lost to heart disease or some other illness or some other cancer. So they will rotate from charity to charity, which is great that they're actually thinking of multiple charities. Selfishly, I wish everyone would just think of Project Purple, but I have to understand that in this real world that we live in, that that's just not realistic. And also what happens sometimes is people do lose a loved one to pancreatic cancer or they're touched by pancreatic cancer and then they have a child or they have someone else in their family become afflicted with another disease and they, I wouldn't say necessarily jump ship, but they go somewhere else, but they're still fundraising. So to go back to my original question, what are some of the things that our donors, or should say fundraisers, participants, that if they are kind of doing year over year over year that they should avoid that we've seen? Well, I think, uh, one of the, one of the biggest things that um, people should keep in mind in terms of donor fatigue uh, is is something we already talked about, which is just like mixing it up and thinking of new and creative ways to go about your fundraising. So you're not always just asking people the same people for money, um, like events or uh, considering. Um, some sort of matching gift strategy if you have a, an employer that, that has a matching gift program. Um, it's just important to kind of like think a little bit bigger uh, uh, and not continue to ask the same people over and over again in a short period of time. Um, I think another one of the pitfalls that people run into um, with this donor fatigue is overposting to social media. So, I mean, sometimes your stuff gets lost in the shuffle of everything because um, our social media accounts are so inundated with things. Um, But also I think your friends and family might see you posting the same things every single day on social media uh, and, you know, hashtag project purple, which is great. We want to, we want to see you guys posting and tagging project purple. um, But we don't want to see the same thing day in and day out on social media every day. And that's going to lead to, to donor fatigue and people not really like reading what you're, what you're posting on social media. I think the one thing too, that I'll add to that too, and, and those are great points and I couldn't agree with you more is, and we talked about this previously in our meeting that we had is the action, you know, and I think a lot of people in today's society just post to post I'm not trying to call anyone out or saying that everyone does this, but I think in terms of fundraising, I think the people that do it well have an actionable consequence to that post. So they don't have that donor fatigue because it's specific and it's actionable and like people get it versus just posting to post. And I think that's the one thing. And and social media has become very clouded I think is probably the best term with so much minutia. You've got politics, you've got world affairs, you've got sports now and videos and all this other stuff that's going on in social media. All of your friends' everyday updates. Yeah. The last time they if went to the bathroom, that, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, if you ha- we all have friends like that, right? <laughs> like regardless of who you are, you have a certain percentage of people that will post everything they eat and everything they're doing and how great their lives are. But so, you know, you have all this clouds, all this stuff in social media. So I think it becomes very hard. And I know we've talked about this. I think originally back in 2010, social media was great for charities. Like we were able to launch really quick on those platforms and raise a lot of money and get bandwidth. And it's almost similar to what's happened over the last year. And it's actually only been a year since last August that Facebook has allowed, and I'm going to use Facebook as an example for social media here, where they've allowed charities to have this donate button, right? And last year we had this tremendous volume of donations, some of it from runners and some of it from random people. But this year it's been kind of off a bit. And I've been talking to other charities, they're experiencing the same thing because social media again is so clouded with all this stuff that's going on. I think the other thing too, 
personally for me, I've read a lot lately and, you know, there's this, um, you know, I think in any times of distress, and I would say the world is in a distressful time with what's happening racially, geopolitically, politically, the environment, that people kind of tend to find mindfulness, I think, or are reminded there's a certain percentage of the population, not for everyone, but I think people are somewhat taking themselves off of like social media. Like uh, yeah, so definitely. many people talk about it, like, you know, limiting social media. Um, and, and it's funny because like, I think if you go back maybe five years ago, social media was just Facebook now and Twitter, right? And now it's Instagram. It's, you know, you've got um, Snapchat, which I don't even use. And then there's the, all these other new what platforms. What is Snapchat? Yeah, what I is Snapchat? Know. Sam, maybe yeah, Sam, Sam can give Sam us a Sam tutorial <laughs> before you leave. Please, Sam. Well, I was just on vacation and <laughs> we had, you know, eight teenagers and they were all streaking on Snapchat. Can anyone tell me what streaks are on Snapchat? Maybe producer Sam, I, b I believe it's like you having these, sending these conversations. A streak. A streak a on streak. Snapchat, Sam. What's a streak on Snapchat? So super simply, um, a streak on Snapchat is just if you Snapchat back and forth between someone, it's just, um, but you the kids get are literally like a little numb. It's so simple. But it's like geniusly like evil by Snapchat because you get a little number next to that person's name, and oh, if what? you don't continue to streak them every, if you don't consider sending them like a streak snap every twenty four hours, it'll disappear, and so like people so freak out addicting. if they if they yes. lose their streak, and even like when it's getting close, like it puts like a little like uh like the hourglass emoji yeah. next to it, like people get very anxious about that. It's so for those who insane. don't know. What streaking on Snapchat is, I will just sum it up this way. The kids are addicted to it. It's another, it's like caffeine. It's worse than caffeine that these kids, these teenagers are streaking on Snapchat. Not not that kind of streaking. Not that We're kind talking of streaking. about not streaking on streaking, Snapchat. Streaking on Snapchat. Yeah, which is just another reason not to be on social media. But so I think, you know, partly going back to our discussion here, you know, I think social media has evolved and it has changed. And I think, you know, 10 years ago, it was really quick and easy to raise money. It's not that case anymore for philanthropy. And, you know, and I think the other thing that's kind of gotten in there too is like you've had uh, three years ago, GoFundMe, you know, raised like a billion dollars, you know, not for charity, but just for people that had, you know, some of them had hardships, some of them were doing Kickstarter campaigns, some of them were just starting businesses or had this great elaborate idea to change the world. And some of them were just for, you know, greed that people were just starting these GoFundMe pages. So, you know, that you have that other noise here in the picture in terms of, you know, raising funds on quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, social media. Shift gears here, Chels. Why should people donate? And let me preface the question. We just did some training. We talked about, I think it's almost 70% here in the United States, people donate. But why should people donate? The uh, This is geared to the other 30%. Not necessarily Project Purple, but charity as a whole. I mean, here's the thing. Like, we spend money on a crazy amount of things, right, in this world throughout the course of our lifetime, throughout the course of a year, Um there are all these things that, you know, we we think we need. We need some of them, but all these things we think we need that we spend money on. And I think when we take a step back um, and look at what really matters, um, and, and we'll just use Project Purple, for example, right, because we all work here. <laughs> um, you know, there are people out there who are battling this disease. They're battling pancreatic cancer day in and day out, uh, and their families are, are going through it with them. And uh, to, to take a look at what really matters uh, and be able to know that you can make a contribution that's going to help a family in need, um, maybe help pay their electric bill so it doesn't get shut off or help them afford their medication. Um, I mean, I think that uh, that's so meaningful and impactful uh, and uh you can probably like do that rather than, you know, get your, your extra gourmet coffee, um, for the week. And Hey, I'm just as guilty as anybody else, but, um, I think there are a lot of, uh, really worthy organizations out there that, um, you know, could use our support where, where people are really, really struggling and need our help. I couldn't agree with you more. Last question for you. What do you, and this is a personal question, where do you think 
fundraising peer to peer goes over the next like three years? Do you think there's like a shift somewhere? Do you think there's like some new means of how it, it happens as a whole? I think I think the shift is happening right now, and we're going to continue to see it go in that direction. Um, which is? Which is we, we can't just post to social media and think that people are going to jump on and donate. And actually, I'm running the New York City Marathon this year. I'm fundraising for it. And granted, I'm not a big social media person, so I didn't really expect anything from this, but I posted to social media, both Instagram and Facebook, and I got zero donations. <laughs> well, you um, didn't smile on your well, Instagram post. Yeah. And I called I you mean, out on that on Instagram. But there was a mountain in the background. It was a beautiful background, but you didn't look happy. <laughs> there was a beautiful background. Um, and you could tell, you know, my skin was glistening from the 10 mile run I had just done. So um, anyway, I, I will just say, I think we're moving in the direction of kind of going back to basics and personally connecting with people when you ask them to donate to your campaign. Um, you know, I, I plan to send out uh, a letter uh, to some people in my family that aren't super involved in social media or even email um, and include an envelope with return stamp on it uh, and, and ask people for donations in that way, because um, I think there's something really neat about kind of going back to that um, and asking in a different way and just just fi finding a different way to connect with people outside of social media because uh, that's not really working for everyone right now. And, and like you said, people are kind of like trying to limit their use of social media as well. So I think we're going to continue to see that, that shift. I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg is not happy on this podcast <laughs> listening to it, but if he does, he, he will listen. He will listen to the Project Work podcast. But I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the other thing that I'll add, and I'll close with this, is you've got to cover all your bases, right? And we've talked about this. Not everyone is on social media. Right. I mean, there's a, there's still a, a tremendous amount of people in the population of the world that don't have a social media account for whatever reason. And I I will just add this one thing too about social media. When you post to social media, um, no one. Really Really feels like you're speaking directly to them. You know, there's no there's no accountability to that. Not that you want to, you know, corner people and force them to make a donation, but individually asking them um, puts a little bit more accountability and personalization there. It's the connection, yeah, what you just said. Absolutely. And that's what we're trying to do. I mean, as as a charity, as an organization, and as our fundraisers, it's all about connection. And people want that connection. They want to be part of something. And in order to do that, you have to make it personal versus just throwing it out there like, hey, look what I did today, or hey, help me out, do this great thing. So with that, Chelsea, thank you for coming back, first of all. We're excited to have <laughs> you back. Thanks for having me back. I'm super excited to be here too, Dino. And thank you for sharing your knowledge on fundraising, what's going on here, where we're going, and all the great things Project Purple related. And as we always say here on the Project Purple podcast... That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Yeah.